Good morning. Um, I appreciate Pastor Jonathan giving me the opportunity uh, to preach this morning. Um, obviously, I wish it was under uh, better circumstances, um, but uh, hope that he and Rebecca can uh, rest a little bit and, and heal up and stay healthy and uh, be back with us uh, as soon as possible. Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts 20. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, have y'all ever tried to uh, fix something and ended up just making it worse? Anybody ever done that? You like you miss where the actual problem is at, and so you, you think you're fixing the problem, and you end up just making it worse. Well, um, a couple of uh, years ago, I had a, a friend. This was back when Emily and I were still in in Tennessee, and uh, he. This was like shortly after he turned 16, and he had. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a Toyota Tacoma. And, um, he, he had not been driving for, for very long. And, uh, the first time that, that he got to where he needed to, to change the oil in his truck, he was like, oh, I'll just do it myself. But he'd never done it before. And so he went to, to a guy in our church who was a, a diesel mechanic. He was like, Hey, how do I, how do I change my oil? And the guy was like, Oh, well, you, you know, you just, you can go up under the truck, you find the oil pan and, and find where the plugs at, you take the plug out, load all the oil drain out. And then you put the plug back in, go up top, put your oil back in. I'm like, all right, well that. That seems pretty self-explanatory. So he, he goes home, he starts changing his oil. He goes up under the truck, finds a plug, takes the plug out, lets everything drain out, puts the plug back in, goes up top and puts his new oil in. And uh, everything seems like it's fine. Well, the next day he's driving his truck down the road and all of a sudden it starts doing this. And he's like, what in the world? And it, and it stops for a minute and he's like, maybe it'll go away. And then it keeps doing it. His truck's just shaking all over the road. And so he pulls off the side of the road and he's like, maybe I just need to cool it off. So he turns the truck off, lets it cool down. And then he turns it back on and pulls it back out on the road and it keeps doing it. His truck's just like shaking all over the road. He's like, what in the world? And so he, he, uh, he, manages, to, he manages to limp his truck back home. And then he, he calls that, that mechanic guy back and he's like, his name was John. He's like, John, my, my, there's something wrong with my truck. I don't know what's going on. It's like shaking all over the road. John's like, well, you just changed the oil in it, didn't you? He's like, yeah. And you did it the way I told you to? He's like, yeah, I went up under the truck, found the plug, took the plug out, let all the oil drain out, put the plug back in, went up top and put the new oil in. And he goes, well, was, when you found the pan and the, and the plug, was it near the front of the truck? Well, no, it was near the middle of the truck. And he, some of y'all know where I'm going with this. <laughs> and it was near the middle of the truck. And John says, well, son, you didn't drain your oil. You drained your transmission fluid. He drained out every drop of transmission fluid that he had in the truck. And, but not only that, he, remember, he thought he had drained out the old oil before he put the new oil in. So he has no transmission fluid and way too much oil in it. And whenever he told me this story for the first time, I was like, well, didn't you check the, the oil level like after you put new oil in? And he was like, yeah, and I saw it was way up there, but I just figured like oil has to like settle or something. I was like, no. <laughs> and so he's driving around with way too much oil. No transmission fluid. Who knows how much blinker fluid he had? <laughs> and, and by the way, the, what makes the story even funnier is a year or two later, he ended up working at Napa. <laughs> and he was actually like good at it. Like he's actually really knowledgeable now, just not when it came to changing his oil at, at 16. But sometimes we do stuff like that, right? Like we, we try fixing a problem, but we miss where the actual problem is at, where the main problem is at. And so we end up just making it worse, Right. Well, today we're going to read where Paul gives a farewell speech to the, the church in Ephesus that we've been reading about the last couple of weeks. And he's going to warn them about some things that they need to look out for. But what we're going to find out is that they actually, they, while trying to do a good job at fixing one problem, they actually missed where the main problem was at and it just made it even worse. 
right? So let's go ahead and read this farewell speech from Paul. So go ahead and stand with your Bibles open to Acts 20. And we're going to start reading in verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, this is Paul, and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold... I know that none, among, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to, the, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that after three years, I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. You can have a seat. God, uh, I pray over this time this morning as we dig into your word. Um, that these will be your words and not mine, um, that these uh, will be uh, from your word to us, and these wouldn't be um, just my uh, opinions or thoughts, but that these would be what you want us to hear this morning and in this season of our church. And so I, I pray that uh, everything that uh, I say and do this morning would glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so if you remember the last two weeks, uh, we've been in uh, Acts chapter 19, uh, where Paul basically set up shop in the city of Ephesus for three years, and he started the church there. So people are, are getting saved there, uh, and they're getting rid of all their sinful habits. And some of those habits were costing them money, right? You, you remember, I can't remember if it was last week or the, or the week before, uh, Jonathan was, was talking about how they were getting rid of, of these, these sinful habits they had, and it was costing them like millions of dollars, right? What, what, what would be millions of dollars in, in today's money? So they're getting rid of all this, and they're doing it because they're saying Jesus is worth it. Right, Jesus isn't just my get out of hell free card. Jesus is my treasure. He's worth it. And, the, and so the church starts growing to the point where it, it even wrecks the city's economy because people aren't spending money on worshiping these false gods anymore. And it even leads to this massive riot in the city right when Paul's getting ready to leave. And it's a reminder to us that the, the gospel's polarizing. Right? Jesus is polarizing. You either love Jesus or you hate him. Right? If you if you go throughout your whole life and you're just kind of like, yeah, that the, the Jesus guy, he's he's pretty cool. Like, he's fine. Well, then you don't know the actual Jesus, 
Because Jesus is polarizing. You either love him and surrender your life to him or you totally reject him. But when the gospel stirs, stirs up the city of Ephesus, it actually has a way more broad impact than just in that city. Because if you, if you look back in chapter 19 at verse 10, it says that all the residents of Asia, which was modern day Turkey, that that entire region began to hear the gospel because of what was happening in Ephesus. And it actually gives us an insight into Paul's missionary strategy and even into, into modern day missions. Because if you remember, Paul, Paul sets up shop there for three years. Like this is, this is Paul's home for three years, right? So he, he sets up shop there. And, and most of the time when we read about Paul's missionary journeys, we typically think about him like going into a city and uh, like spending a, a couple of days there or maybe a couple of weeks there and he's sharing the gospel and then he moves on somewhere else, right? Well, there are times where he does that, but there are other times like in, in Ephesus where he sets up shop and he lives there, right? Ephesus is one of the, the exceptions. Paul set up shop there for three years. And the reason is because he knew how influential that city was, right? It massively affected the whole region around it. And so Paul's strategy was, hey, if I can get the gospel, like I can get the gospel to the entire area of modern day Turkey simply by setting up, setting up shop in this one city and letting the news spread from there. And it worked, right? The Bible tells us that that strategy worked. And Paul essentially shared the, shared the gospel with this entire region just by being in this one city. But as we know, Paul eventually moves on and travels to other cities. And so Paul starts the church in Ephesus. He pastors it for a while. He equips other leaders to, to step up to the plate. And then he moves on, right? And so that's what, what happens at the beginning of chapter 20. Is he moves on to travel to other cities. And Luke, who's the, the author of Acts, he quickly lists off several places where Paul travels through. And at one of his stops, there's actually kind of a, a humorous story where he, he's in this one city and he's, he's with the, the church there. And he's, he's preaching, and they're in a third-story uh, room. And Paul's preaching, and, and he's sharing the gospel, and he, he gets really long-winded, and he goes till midnight. I promise I'm not going to go till midnight, okay? Um, not past three in the afternoon. Um, but he, he, he goes until midnight, and there's, there's this dude named Eutychus. And the poor guy, he's sitting in the window of this third-story building, and he's, he's, like, trying to stay awake. But Paul's, like, going, like, really long. And so he's trying to stay awake, and eventually he goes... Phew! And he, like, falls three stories to his death, right? But, like, no worries. Paul just goes down and he raises him from the dead. He's like, all right, you good? All right, let's keep going. And so they just go back up and he keeps on preaching. And it says that they keep going until morning. So Paul gets long-winded all the way till midnight. Dude falls out the window and dies. He raises him from the dead. They keep going until morning and then he leaves. That's just how Paul rolls, right? And so, so the point of the story is don't fall asleep during the sermon, okay? <clears throat> just kidding, sort of. Um, but... But Paul, from there, he, he continues on, and so he, he travels through all these cities, and eventually he starts making his way back. So he, he, he tries to make his way back to Jerusalem. He's, on, he's in a hurry to get back to the city of Jerusalem, and he's actually, at this point, traveling back past the city of Ephesus. But he doesn't stop there, because he, he knows he doesn't have time. He knows he's going to get hung up, and he's trying to get back to Jerusalem. So he doesn't stop in Ephesus, but he still wants to speak to uh, the, the church leaders from Ephesus. So he, he sends word to these church leaders to meet him in this, in this city called Miletus, which is about 30 miles south of Ephesus. And so they, they come and they meet him, and he gives them this farewell speech that we just read because he believes that he'll never, he'll never see them again. Now, something that's, that's interesting is this farewell speech, it's actually similar to some other farewell speeches in the Bible. For example, basically the entire book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament is basically a farewell speech from Moses to the nation of Israel before he dies. 
And then after him, Joshua comes up, and at the end of Joshua's life, he gives a farewell speech to Israel shortly before he dies. You fast forward a couple hundred years, and there's a guy named Samuel who leads Israel for a while. And then as he's basically moving into retirement, he gives a farewell speech. And so you have all these, all these uh, leaders of Israel who, who give farewell speeches after their, their time is done. But what's interesting is these speeches all have some, some similarities. Basically what they do, their goal is to look back and then to look forward. So they all recall Israel's history up to that point, both good and bad, as a reminder to learn from that history. And then they all look forward with both promises and warnings, but, but mainly warnings. And basically they all say, hey, if you learn from, from the past and remain faithful in serving the one true God, then things will go well. But if you don't learn from history and you reject God, God will let you go your own way. But you're going to wish that you hadn't. Well, what we see from Paul in Acts 20 is similar. Paul recalls his previous ministry in Ephesus. He tells these church leaders to learn from that history. And then he warns them about what to look for in the future. So quickly, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at what Paul says about his previous ministry in Ephesus. But then we're going to camp out on the warnings that he gives for the future. So first, in in verse 19 of this chapter, Paul gives three characteristics of his ministry. He's like, here's what my ministry was like while I was with you. He says it was filled with humility, with tears, and with trials. Humility, tears, and trials. Paul's honest. He says, hey, when I was with you, it was difficult. Like, I, I tried to lead with humility, but it was, it was extremely tough. Because when you're pouring into people and making disciples, it's difficult, right? Because when you're, you're, you're simultaneously coming alongside people to help carry their burdens, but you're simultaneously having some of those people betray you, just like Jesus, right? If it happened to Jesus, it'll happen to us. He carried people's burdens, and some of those people stabbed him in the back. That's what Jesus did. When you, when you minister to, to people, it gets messy and difficult. So our eyes can't be fixed on what's going on with people around us because it'll drive you nuts, right? Our eyes have to be fixed on Christ because he never changes. After that, Paul, in, in verse 20, Paul lists three methods of his ministry. He's like, all right, here, here, that's what my ministry was like. Now, here, here's the way that I did ministry, Okay. First of all, he says that it was well-rounded. He he says, hey, I didn't hold anything back from you that was profitable, right? Whether or not you wanted to hear it, I told it to you, right? If it was profitable and useful to you in in equipping you to follow Jesus, I told it to you. So it was well-rounded. And he says it was public and it was private. He he says, I I taught you publicly and I taught you going from, from house to house. In other words, they valued coming together in corporate worship and they valued being together in each other's homes. Usually we want one or the other, right? I, I love the fact that we're able to, to live stream uh, services. So when people legitimately can't be here, like they can still tune in for worship. That's how our pastor and his family are able to worship with us today, right? So that like, that's awesome. But sometimes we can find it convenient. We can find convenient reasons not to value this time together. We only come on Sundays and Wednesdays whenever all the stars align and like there's nothing else going on and then we'll be here, Right? And when I mean nothing else going on, I mean things that could have been avoided or rescheduled, right? But instead we choose to, to miss this time together, right? And when, whenever we do that, we're harming ourselves and the church because we're all one body, right? So whenever we're not together, we're harming ourselves and the body. So we either do that or we do the opposite, right? We value the public gathering, but Paul mentioned public and private, right? So those of you who are, who are here... Like every Sunday and Wednesday, and you're like, yeah, everybody else needs to be here. Well, hang on, because Paul doesn't let us off the hook either, okay? 
Because so often we want to roll into Sundays and Wednesdays and make sure that make sure that everyone sees us so they don't bother us and be like, hey, where you been, right? We, we want to roll in on Sundays and Wednesdays. We want to put on a good face and act like everything's okay. But we're never transparent enough to have real community. We treat, we treat church on Sundays and Wednesdays like it's an event to attend rather than remembering that we are the church and we're supposed to do life together, not just attend events together. We're supposed to be a community where we can be honest with one another about what's going on, where, we can, where we're spending time in each other's lives and each other's homes, right? I love having to, to being able to have people over to, to our home or be in, in other people's homes where we can talk about what we're learning from God's word together, where we can talk about how we can pray with one another, right? Or where we can just hang out and spend time together, right? I, I love doing that. And I'm an introvert, right? Like some people are like, well, I don't like really being around people that much. Neither do I. Like I have students who tell me like, well, I just don't like being around people. And I'm like, me neither. They're like, but you're a youth pastor. And I'm like, yeah, God has a sense of humor, right? <laughs> but you know what I always found out, find out, even as an introvert, I need that time, right? It's beneficial, it's refreshing, and it's refueling. Paul reminds us that we're supposed to do life together publicly and privately. So from there, in, in verse 21, Paul moves on and he tells us the message of his ministry, which is simple, repentance and faith. He just shared the gospel. He just preached the gospel, right? It, it wasn't like just motivational speeches. It wasn't like, hey, here's five tips for a happy, healthy life. He just preached the gospel. He said, here's the gospel and here's how it affects your life. He simply told people how to turn from their sin, turn to Jesus, and spend the rest of their lives pursuing him. So after, after Paul looks back on his ministry in, in those areas, he then starts looking ahead to where he's going next. In verses 22 and 23, he says, hey, I don't know where, um, I, I don't know what's lying ahead of me. I don't know what's coming, except that it's going to be suffering and affliction. Yay! Right? But... Paul says, I'm totally fine with that. And you know why? Because I don't value my life. I value Jesus. Verse 24, he says this. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what he cared about. Because he knew that life here on earth and the suffering that goes along with it, it's temporary. But Jesus is eternal. Now, here's, in the next part, here's where Paul starts to set them up for what he's about to warn them for in the future. In verses 25 to 27, he basically says, hey, you're uh, probably never going to see me again. So I just want you to know that while I was with you, I didn't hold anything back. I gave it everything. I, pre I presented the full gospel to you. If anyone rejected the gospel, it's not because I didn't share it. And he's basically going to say to these church leaders, he's going to say, hey, listen, while I was with you, I did my job. Now you do yours. My ministry there is done, but you are the ones who are going to continue leading this church. So you better remain faithful and diligent in doing it. Look real quick at, at verse 28. Notice the first group of people that Paul tells them to pay attention to. He says what? He says, pay careful attention to who? Yourselves. That's the first, people, first group of people he tells them to watch out for. Paul says, before you start paying attention to anyone else, you keep a constant eye on your own heart. Normally what we want to do is we want to take a quick check in the mirror and make sure that like there's no major sin that anybody else is going to call out and then be like, all right, 
check. All right, now I have a license to go call out everybody else's sin. That's usually, even though we wouldn't say that out loud, that's usually our attitude, right? And it's not normally in, in the sense of, of accountability, like where Jesus says, uh, hey, like take the, take the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye in an accountability way. It's normally in a gossip way, right? Right, like we, we check and we're like, hey, I don't, have a, I don't have a log in my eye. Okay, sweet. All right, did you, did you see the speck in his eye? Did you hear what she said? Did you see what he did? That's normally what we want to do. Instead, instead of going to the person we're talking about and with humility, lovingly calling out sin and also being willing for them to call out sin in our lives, that's the way it should work. That's what Jesus was talking about. But here Paul says, keep a close watch on your own hearts first. And then he says, then you keep an eye on the rest of the flock, the rest of the church. Because as leaders, you're called to guard the flock. But notice the way that Paul phrases it. He says, care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. What's the point? The point is, the church isn't yours, it's God's. This, this church belongs to no one except Jesus. Doesn't belong to Jonathan, doesn't belong to you or me or anyone. Except Jesus. It doesn't matter if, if you've only been here a, a year and a half like me, or if you were here way back when there was only one church, one, one church building on the property. It doesn't belong to any of us. It's not ours. Now, we, we cognitively know that, but we don't always act like it, right? Every single one of us at, at, at certain times will fall into feeling like we have ownership in this church, right? We wouldn't say it out loud, but we act like we own portions of the church. I'm tempted to, to act like the youth ministry is mine, but it's not. It's been entrusted to me by the God who owns it. Your class is not yours. Your area of ministry is not yours. These buildings are not yours, right? Well, but, but I tithe. I paid for that. Yeah, and who provided the paycheck for you to tithe from? We need to remember the difference between ownership and stewardship. There's a difference. Ownership means it's yours. Stewardship means it's someone else's and they've entrusted it to you to take care of the way they want it taken care of. Not the way I want it taken care of, the way God wants it taken care of. Paul says, care for the church because it's not yours, it's God's. And whether or not you're in a leadership role in this church, we all need reminders of that. Paul then warns them, he moves on and he warns them of two different kinds of enemies. External enemies and internal enemies. First, in verse 29, he says, external enemies will come in among them like wolves. The most obvious example of this would be false teachers, right? People who will come in and say 95% truths. They'll say some stuff that's true, but they'll ultimately, they'll ultimately twist the core truths of the gospel. And they'll mislead people into believing a false gospel that looks like it's true, right? They'll say, Jesus, Jesus isn't the only way. He's one way. Or if you do the right things and say the right prayers, then God will bless you with material wealth. And a variety of other lies that they'll wrap up a nice articulate packaging and mislead people away from the real truth of the gospel and away from who Jesus actually is. Paul says, watch out for those enemies who come in from the outside. But then it gets really sobering because the next thing that Paul says hits a lot closer to home. Because... Most of us, we, we hear that part and we're like, yeah, 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 those, those false teachers, they need, they need to stay out there, right? We're going we're gonna to stand our ground and make sure that we hold the truth. 
And then Paul delivers a gut punch, right? Look at verse 30. It says, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From where? From among your own selves. Paul is looking at this group of leaders, men that he would have shared the gospel with, men that he saw come to Jesus, men that he would have mentored and trained for three years, men whose houses he would have had dinner in. These are friends who he is leaving in charge of this church. And with tears in his eyes, he says, some of you are going to become internal enemies in this church. It's, it's eerily similar to Jesus' last meal with his disciples, right? Where he looks at them and he says, one of you will betray me. And you, you remember what they said? Not a single one of them suspected Judas. Not one of them leaned over to, to the guy next to him and said, you know, I don't really know who it is, but if it's anybody, it's got to be Judas. None of them said that. You remember what they said? They said, is it me? Like, think about that for a second. They suspected themselves before they suspected Judas. And at first glance, it's easy to be like, wow, they were clueless. Like he was right there and they had no idea. Well, the disciples were clueless sometimes, but that illustrates a couple of things. First of all, it illustrates that it's not always blatantly obvious. It's actually rarely obvious. And Paul's making the same point in Acts 20. He says, some of you are going are to betray this church. But secondly, with the disciples, I think there's actually something really significant that we can learn from their reaction. Where their response is to, is to say, is it me? Because most of the time when we hear something like this about people within the church who end up leading people astray, our first reaction is to do this. Like, who is it? Right? We start looking around trying to figure out who it is. But the disciples show us that the first place we should be looking is right here. And Paul's making the same point in Acts 20. Of course, we should be on our guard against external enemies coming in to lead people astray. But the first place we should be checking is our own hearts. Because we're prone to wander. And we think, oh, that, that would never be me, right? I would never lead someone astray. Well, guess what? Judas would have said the same thing. It's not like Judas was walking around for three years with Jesus with this diabolical plan to betray him. That's not what happened. What happened was he let his heart wander. You might be sitting here thinking, well, I, I would never be that person, right? I'm a, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I totally disagree with false teaching. I'm a deacon. I'm a teacher. I'm at every women's Bible study. I'm in youth every Wednesday. I play or sing in the choir or in the band. I serve in this area or that area. I would never say anything to, to lead someone astray. I would never do anything to lead people astray. Well, that attitude isn't guarding your heart. That's putting the shield down and assuming you don't need it. Our attitude instead should be, God, don't let my heart wander. I'm prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God that I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and steal it. And you know what? That's a prayer that, that God will answer. Jude tells us that he is able to keep us from stumbling. Keep a lookout for external threats. But more importantly than that, prayerfully and humbly guard your own heart and finish well. So, did the church at Ephesus do that? Well, for most churches in the New Testament, whenever we see Paul or someone else giving them instruction, for most of those churches, we don't know how they responded. 
But Ephesus is one of the exceptions because it's mentioned a lot in the New Testament. So we can actually fast forward beyond this passage in Acts and see how well they did. We, we know, of course, that, that Paul wrote uh, the book of Ephesians as a letter to this church later on. Uh, and we know that later in, 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 that, church, in that letter, in, in parts, he, he warns against false teaching and against letting uh, their, their hearts wander. He uh, later writes two, two letters to Timothy, who was a pastor at this church at one point. But the last point, the last uh, time that we hear about the church in Ephesus is in Revelation 2. Go ahead and, and turn there because I want you to see this. Turn to Revelation 2. Remember that in that farewell address in Acts, Paul warns against external enemies like false teachers. And he warns against the internal enemy of letting our hearts wander. So let's see how this church did. This, so this is Jesus speaking in Revelation 2. This is him telling John what to write down to the church at Ephesus. Okay, Here's what Jesus says. Look at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. What do you know? They actually listened to Paul. They were actually diligent and stayed alert, and whenever false teaching would come into the church, they'd throw it right back out, right? So they kept an eye out for false teaching. So when it came to external enemies, check. They had that one covered. But keep going. Look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, your church is going to die. So how did they do when it came to the internal enemy of their own hearts? Not so good. And that's what they're remembered for. This church is remembered as being the church that, that lost their first love. The church that did a bunch of right things. The church that stood up for truth. The church that impacted an entire region for the gospel. But that church is gone today. There is no church in Ephesus anymore. And it's because they let their hearts wander. They said, oh, we're, we're, we're the ones calling out false teaching. So, of course, we couldn't be the ones to, to wander away. It's those people out there who need to come back to Jesus. Last Wednesday, a, a week and a half ago, uh, in family worship, Pastor Jonathan uh, mentioned a, a very sobering observation. He said that whenever, if you look back across church history, whenever you've seen revival movements come up in, in church history, they didn't start with the culture waking up and returning to Jesus. They started with the church waking up and returning to Jesus. We need God to tear the calluses off of our hearts and soften them towards him and towards those around us again. So how do we guard our hearts? Three practical ways to, to guard our hearts and then we're done. The, the church at Ephesus was given at least three ways to guard their hearts. And they were told these at, at three different times. Okay, So one is in the, in the farewell speech that Paul gave him in Acts 20. One is in the book of Ephesians and one is uh, in Revelation 2. So here's the first one in Acts 20. Keep your eyes fixed on real prosperity. Keep your eyes fixed on real prosperity. Did you know that the, the gospel is a prosperity gospel? Now I got your attention. <laughs> Some of y'all just woke up. You're like, wait a minute. He just was talking about false teachers and how we need to get rid of them. And now he's the one talking about a prosperity gospel. Okay. Well, the gospel does promise us prosperity. 
in eternity. That's the difference, right? The difference with the prosperity gospel, if you've never heard what the prosperity gospel is, it basically tells you that uh, like if you, if you pray the right way and have enough faith, that God's plan for you is to have health, wealth, and prosperity right now. You just need to have enough faith. So if you're not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, that means you don't have enough faith. So you need to pay the church more money. That's what that means, right? That's what, that's what they say, right? The real gospel is that if you're a child of God, you will have health, wealth, and prosperity once you're with Jesus in eternity. That's what makes it worth it when we suffer now, when we don't have health, wealth, and prosperity now. Look at, at Acts 20, verses 32 and 33. Paul says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I, while I was with you, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Paul says, hey, you're going to get an eternal inheritance from your father one day. So fix your eyes on that instead of fixing your eyes on gold or silver or apparel or approval or a nice house or a nice car or a nice retirement or anything else that's in this life only. That's the first way that we guard our hearts, keeping our eyes fixed on real prosperity the prize that we have coming in eternity, not on the selfish things that we want to chase now. Here's the second way that we guard our hearts, by walking in light, by walking in light. That's what Paul tells this same church in Ephesians 5. Now, what what does it mean to walk in light? That's kind of a, a churchy phrase, but what does it actually mean to walk in light? Well, first of all, here's what it does not mean. It doesn't mean that you walk in sinlessness because that's impossible, even for the Christian, Right? We should be growing closer to Christ every single day, but we're never going to be sinless until we're with him in eternity. Walking in light doesn't mean walking in sinlessness. It means walking in confession. Walking in light isn't about whether or not you sin. It's about what you do with that sin. It's not about whether or not you sin. It's about what you do with that sin. It's about whether or not you push that sin into a dark corner and hope that no one finds out or whether you bring it into the light and confess it to God and to other trusted brothers and sisters in Christ so that you can be healed and freed from it. That's the difference. Walking in light isn't a call to perfection. It's a call to consistency and transparency. Sometimes we want to maintain a a reputation at the expense of being real. And we end up hiding sin and assuming we can deal with it until it jumps out of that dark corner and destroys us. Guard your heart by walking in light. And here's the last thing. Guard your heart by growing closer to your first love. By growing closer to your first love. That's what, that's what Jesus told John to write in, in Revelation 2. If you're a Christian, you're either growing closer to Jesus or you're drifting away from him. There's no middle ground. When I play baseball, I had coaches all the time tell me, you're never, you're never just staying the same. You're either getting be- Every day, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. Same thing in the Christian life, right? You're, you're either moving closer, closer to Jesus or you're drifting away from him, right? Whenever you go to the beach and you, you go out in the water a little bit to go swimming, right? If you're not really paying attention, what ends up happening? Start drifting, right? All of a sudden you look up for your umbrella and your chairs and they're 100 feet down the beach, right? And like the pier is like right here, right? What do you have to do in order to drift? Absolutely nothing. Just sit there. You don't have to do anything to drift. If you just sit there, you'll drift away perfectly fine on your own. The church at Ephesus drifted from their first love because they grew passive. They didn't actively pursue the one who saved them. But you know what's scary? They thought they were being active. That's what's scary. 
They thought, well, of course we're not being passive, right? We're sharing the gospel. We're getting rid of false teachers. We're actively, busily doing ministry, right? But even though they thought they were active in those areas, they grew passive when it came to their own hearts. Like a bad oil change, they thought they were fixing the problem. But they totally missed where the real problem was. Don't call out sin out there and neglect to pursue your first love here. So with that in mind, that's actually a perfect way for us to transition into the Lord's Supper. That's how we're going to close. So in a minute, I'm going to explain and remind us of why we do the Lord's Supper and what it's representing. But for right now, I just want us to focus on one thing. In light of what we've heard today about walking in confession and guarding our own hearts, listen to what Paul says to a different church about approaching the Lord's Supper. This is to the church in Corinth. It says, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let the person examine himself, not examine the person next to him, examine himself and so eat the, bring, eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What we're about to do is a serious thing. It's a joyful thing, but it's also serious and sobering. So we're gonna we're gonna have a song of reflection, and we're just gonna we're just gonna remain seated. And this is gonna be a time of confession just between us and God. Whatever whatever sin is in the way between you and God, now's the time to deal with it. And during this time, it's easy to to have the mindset of, well, yeah, I'll, I'll confess my sin to God, but and he, I believe He'll forgive me, but then He's gonna sit there and look at me like this with his arms crossed like a disapproving father like oh what you wait till now to confess your sin that's not god's attitude god's waiting for us to come and confess sin god wants us to come and confess sin so that we can get it out of the way so we can enjoy this time with him not so he can hang it over our heads like a dark cloud shame so confess sin not to feel shame but so that the shame can be removed because whatever sin you're confessing jesus already took the shame for it on the cross so we're going to spend this time getting, getting things out of the way and choosing instead to fix our eyes on Jesus to the point where everything else fades away in comparison. Turn your eyes away from sin and towards Jesus so we can enjoy the fellowship with him that he wants us to have. Let's pray.